This morning, if you would, turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, If there be any, therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but on every man on also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here the Apostle Paul begins this chapter encouraging disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ to be united, be in unity, to also be humble, and for there to be unity, there must be humility. And then he will go on to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we find the Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth that we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So we have the mind of Christ. Now he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have the mind of Christ, but it's also incumbent upon us to use the mind of Christ in our daily activity. What does it mean to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, taught it not Robert to be equal with God. Is he talking about advancing ourselves here? No, he's letting us know that Jesus who is and was God humbled himself. And if Jesus of all people could humble himself in the manner in which he did, as Paul will describe, who being in the form of God, he thought it not Robert to be equal with God. But notice he said, made himself of not just a low reputation, but of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, the creator of men, became a man. And he says, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, obviously, wherefore, God now has also highly exalted him because of that which he did, but he encourages us to have the mind of Christ, which here is the mind of humility. What a great contrast if you will last week we tried to look at the godhead and we today would like to look at the person of the lord jesus christ in some detail um, i don't want to become too technical uh, but i do want to look at the person of christ the second in the godhead and if god will bless us today i want to look specifically at some of the attributes of deity that are clearly displayed in the life of the lord jesus christ while he dwelt here upon the earth now, I brought all this out mainly to look at verse number six, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus not one time ever apologized for being God. I've said this before, but as with many things, it's worth repeating. Jesus at any point as the Jews sought him and then arrested him, 
could have simply denied being the son of God, and most likely they would have let him go. That was the chief complaint of the Jewish religious hierarchy against the Lord Jesus Christ, is that they said he made himself the son of God. He's trying to uh, equal himself with God. Jesus never went around thumbing his lapel saying, I am Jesus Christ, the son of God. How did he most often refer to himself? Often he referred to himself as the son of man. He put focus on his humanity. Others would put focus on his deity and he left that for them to do. But he never one time denied that he was God's eternal son. Not one time, not one occasion. Had he done so, they would have likely have let him go. But he could not deny that. Why? Because he's a God of truth and without iniquity. And he could not deny himself. And thank God he cannot deny himself because the Apostle Paul says because he cannot deny himself, he will not deny you even if you believe not. And so thank God he never did deny that he was the son of God to save his own life. So here Paul says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now again, he made himself of no reputation and did all that for the specific purpose of suffering for our sins and dying. But... As he lived in this world, he never thought it robbery to be equal with God. One of my very favorite verses in all the Bible is found in the book of Zechariah chapter 13. Hopefully you can quote it by now. I've quoted it enough. Uh, 13 verse 7. Here's God the Father speaking through the prophet uh, Zechariah saying, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Notice this part though. Against the man... (laughs) That is my fellow. That is the man that is my, my equal, my neighbor, uh, my contemporary. He, notice he didn't just say, uh, awake, O sword, against the word, uh, which is my fellow. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my equal or is my fellow. So even God the Father said, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was made incarnate in the flesh, Uh, came in the form of man. God the Father says that the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the equal of God the Father. God the Father here himself declares that in Zechariah chapter 39. He says, awake, O sword. What's he saying there? He's letting us know the moment would come. Later, the next chapter, he said that there would be a fountain opened. And that fountain, of course, would be the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ himself when God would plunge his own sword of wrath into the soul of the Son of God so that you and I would be forever purged from our sins. Uh, Here he says, awake, O sword, the sword of the wrath of God against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. Then he goes on to say, if you smite the shepherd and the flock, shall be scattered also speaking prophetically of what would happen with the disciples when the Lord Jesus Christ was arrested. And all of that came to pass just as God declared in prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13. But again, he says there, this man is my fellow. This man is my equal. And so no wonder Jesus didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. Turn with me for a moment to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews, the first chapter, the Apostle Paul begins writing this way, God, who at sundry, meaning several times in divers many different ways, God, who at many times and in different manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He's letting us know that going all the way back to Moses, God spoke to his people. Uh, That great prophet uh, Moses, God used to speak to the people of God. God spoke by different men and different means. There were times the Bible says that angels spake to men. 
There were times that God spoke directly to men. And there were times that God called prophets to speak to men. So God in many different ways in the Old Testament era uh, spoke to men. But notice what he says. Hath in these last days spoken unto us how by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, notice this, by whom also he made the world. He said, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he had by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he, meaning God the Father, at any time thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again when he bringeth in the first begotten in the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. <laughs> and, the angels, and of the angels he saith, they shall be his spirits and ministers as flames of fire. But unto the son he saith, thy throne, O God. Notice this, thy throne, O God, he says to the son, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The Apostle Paul has said an immense amount about Jesus Christ in these opening verses to the Hebrew people. Now the Hebrews, uh, they understood a Messiah was coming. They had known that all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. But the declaration that God the Father says to Eve after the fall, when he actually he speaks it to Satan, when he says that, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of Satan himself, pointing to the fact that there would be a Messiah that comes in the world that would have no earthly father, but of course an earthly mother. And in that we see the virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the highest when, he was, when she was overshadowed there, as we see in the early accounts of the Gospel of Matthew and also Luke. So the Lord Jesus Christ comes into this world Notice what he says, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. That's why Paul could tell us in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, that if we're children, then we're heirs, and we're joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus owns, you're a joint heir with him. That means you own it jointly, meaning according to legal terminology, that you own it 100%. I own it 100%. Uh, no one can sell it off. No one can give it away. We all jointly own it all together. It's all the Lord Jesus, and he willfully has willed that to you and I. So here he says that God has made him heir of all things. But then notice what he says in verse 3. Who, being the, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person... Now that word express image is a very interesting term and I, I, I don't fully understand and comprehend it myself especially not enough to describe it. Uh, and again, I don't want to become too technical. The whole point of this series is not so that we can dive so deep into who God is and then also the doctrines of salvation but that hopefully that we can grab uh, the, at least the highlights, if you will, and, and comprehend it to the point that we can defend it uh, at least uh, in some fashion. But here when he says the express image. Now when we see Adam was made. Notice what God said in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. And after our likeness. 
So man was made in the image of God to a point, to a point. Now, he was made where he was able to fall. He was made a good man. He was made without any sin whatsoever. He was in the image of God in the sense that he knew no wickedness, no evil, no sin at this point. And so in that way, he bore the image of God. But obviously with the fall, and then when we see that Adam and Eve have their firstborn, what does the Bible say about that firstborn? That that child came into the world in the image of Adam, meaning the marred image of man. So Adam was made in the likeness of God to a point. But the Bible says of the Lord Jesus Christ that he came as the express image of what of his person. We've been talking about the persons of the Godhead. There's a reason that the Bible uses this word person. Obviously, you're a person. I'm a per- what does that mean to have personality? It means there's some individuality. That means there's a, a will. There's thought. There's the ability to communicate. Uh, there's more than just being some impersonal force. See, the apostle realized that you and I would live in a day in which there would be many in this world that believe in a higher power, but this higher power has no knowledge, has no personality. Uh, has no ability to communicate, uh, that is just out there, uh, that we can't reach, that can't reach us, very divided from us, but at the same time, doesn't take knowledge of us. I mean, there's no comfort in that, is there? About some force that is beyond us, above us, but at the same time cannot reach us, and we cannot reach that force. That's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that the Bible declares. That's not the creator of this world. So here he says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So God the Father is a person. And for Jesus Christ to be the express image of his person means he likewise is a person as well. He's the second person of the Godhead. But when it says the express image, it means the exact replica. It means that when you have seen the Lord Jesus Christ, you've also seen the Father. As Jesus told Philip in John chapter 14. So when you behold the Lord Jesus Christ, it's as though you're beholding God the Father. That's why it says in the book of Colossians that it pleased God that in Him should all fullness dwell. That in Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. (laughs) Because when you behold the Lord Jesus Christ, you're beholding the Godhead. And that's what here the Apostle Paul declares. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins set down on the right hand of the majesty on high now i tell you this even if it had been a man that was not deity that could have purged our sins which was a complete impossibility god still would not have given that exalted place of his right hand to that one but because the lord jesus christ is the eternal son of god And he did that which pleased his father and ascended back to glory after he'd completed his mission on earth. God told him to sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. He wouldn't have said that to me could I have redeemed you. He wouldn't have said it to you if you could have redeemed me. But because the Lord Jesus Christ, not only being the son of Mary, was also the son of God. When he ascends back to glory, what is it again? He says to him, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So the Lord Jesus Christ is clearly declared here to be God himself. He's the express image of God the Father. 
Now let's look for a few moments at some of the attributes of God that we've already looked at over the past few weeks. And now let's see them in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are attributes of God that theologians have come up with two categories. They're biblical. I don't know why they, anyway, they're categorized two ways. The communicable attributes of God, that means the attributes of God that he can give to us. And there are those attributes of God that are incommunicable, meaning they only belong to God and cannot be uh, transferred to you and I. Uh, So when you read about the attributes of God, you're going to usually, if you're reading after any theologian, they're going to try to distinguish whether it's one that God can communicate or one that God cannot, one that God can give you or one that cannot be given to you. God is a creator. That is not a attribute that God, an attribute that God can communicate. That's something that God alone holds. So if God alone holds that ability, and yet the Bible lets us know that it's Jesus Christ who made the worlds, what do we have to deduce from that? That Jesus Christ is God. This is an attribute that, again, that cannot be communicated. Now, men may be inventors, But all men are doing are taking uh, elements that God has already made and changing them up somewhat and coming up with something different, maybe something new. But we're not creators in the same sense that God is. We're just, uh, just taking some ingredients and shaking them up and what comes out is our invention. But we have not created anything that God had not already made. Uh, it's like the uh, old uh, joke about the atheist that comes before God and uh, begins to brag to God that he could also make a man. And so the man reaches down to grab dirt, and God says, hold on, get your own dirt. You know, he was about to use the substance that God used. He said, but wait a minute, before you do that, you've got to get your own. It's mine. It's not yours. You've got to start with your own material. We have none to start with. It's all the Lord's. The heaven is his, and the heaven of heavens, but also the earth and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the very, the very first sermon, we looked at God the Creator. Again, that is an attribute of God that he cannot communicate, meaning he cannot grant that to another. So if the Lord Jesus Christ is the creative force, the one who made the world and all things that are therein, then that means he must be eternally God. Uh, he is not someone that came to earth and did such uh, things that God was so pleased with that God elevated him to the status of Godhead. And there are some that believe that. There are some that bear the name Christian that actually believe that the Lord Jesus Christ came as a good man, a holy man, a sinless man, and pleased God so well in the matter of redemption that then God elevated him to the status of the Godhead. That is not the teaching of the Word of God. Again, Zechariah chapter 13, God says there in that chapter, in that verse, verse 7, He says, This man is my fellow. He is my equal. He already existed as the Son of God. Uh, we find in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, God, uh, when the fullness of, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. He didn't make His Son. He sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Uh, so the Son of Man was made, the Son of God was sent. And in one body we find the dwelling of the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ, altogether God and altogether man. Indivisible, uh, but yet he's man and yet he's God. But he, there was a point in time which he was not man. But there came a point in history he became a man. As he says here in this chapter. 
or where we started in Philippians chapter 2. But God knew long before Jesus came to the world that he would come as a man. And even as that, he says, this man is my equal. Now turn with me. Well, we can stay actually right here where we're at. It says that the Son of God upholds all things by the word of his power. So it's Jesus that maintains the world. But as you go on reading in this chapter, notice what we find in verse 9. He says of Jesus, he says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. He says, and thou, Lord, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They, meaning this earth, the works of the hands of Jesus Christ, he says, they shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old, as doth a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail." He says, but to which of the angels said he at any time sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? So notice what the Apostle Paul says of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, thou, Lord Jesus, he says, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. So here the Apostle Paul just attributes the creation to the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now John the Apostle does the very same thing when in John chapter 1 verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on to let us know that all things were made by Him, meaning the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible teaches us in multiple places that everything that's created was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 4, it makes it very clear in the 11th verse that He made all things. And all things were made for His glory. All things were made for Him. Uh, they were all created for Him. They weren't created for you. They weren't created for me. They were all created for the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 1 and many other places we can find that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who made the world. Again, notice what he says here. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. So when David talks about the handiwork of God in the Psalms, who's he talking about? He's talking about the second person in the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, who made the world. And not only did he make this world, he's the one who maintains this world. Paul would say to the church at Colossae, all things were made by him, and by him all things consist. That means they continue. It's Jesus that's holding this world together. Thank God it's not the United Nations. It's not NATO. It's not the president. It's not the Congress. It's not uh, anyone else that's upon the face of this earth. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is keeping this world together. For those who worry, and especially back in the atomic era, when, uh, which obviously we're still in, but back when the focus was on uh, Russia and the United States during the Cold War, not knowing at what moment missiles might begin flying from every direction, uh, there were a lot of concern about how this world would continue on. I hope had I lived at the height of the Cold War, 
that I wouldn't have been fearful knowing that God was going to keep what he made. And so far he has. Now, if you've read any history in the dealings of the United States and Russia during the Cold War, you'll find there were a few times that we were very, very close to nuclear war. In fact, it's amazing how close we were and how it didn't happen. You know why I believe it didn't happen? I believe the preserving hand of God uh, stepped in and the providence of God intervened and things did not occur. Uh, you can read about the presidency of John F. Kennedy, in particular when those missiles had been moved into Cuba and how he uh, set that blockade, that naval blockade, to prevent any more uh, warheads from coming there. And thank God that Russia stood down and we didn't end up in a nuclear war during that time. But that wasn't the only occasion that we came close. But thankfully, God and his providence stepped in, I believe, and uh, preserved us to this present hour. So God is a creator. He cannot communicate that ability to another. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who created this world, which means that alone declares that he is God. But now let us look for a moment at the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God, and the omnipotence of God. We talked about God's power, God's knowledge, and that God is everywhere present and nowhere absent. We see that displayed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take for just a moment the omniscience of God, that God is all-knowing. Think about the Lord Jesus when he walked this earth. The things that he knew. I find in John, the fourth chapter, when he comes to the woman of the well of Samaria, at the well of Samaria, and he wants something to drink, and she's amazed that this Jew would speak to a Samaritan, which a Samaritan was half Jew, half Gentile. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans worse than they hated the Gentiles. They were considered betrayers because they had intermingled uh, with Gentiles. And this woman was amazed that the Lord would have anything to do with her. And so she begins to talk to him about their God and where they worship. Uh, how their fathers uh, worshipped in this mountain. The Lord lets her know that there was coming a time that true worshipers wouldn't worship in that mountain nor at Jerusalem. In other words, the place wouldn't necessarily matter where upon the earth. Now the right place to worship God is in the house of God, the church of the living God. But that can be anywhere upon the face of this earth, wherever God would establish a church. He lets her know God doesn't seek individuals that come to a particular mountain. What does God seek to worship Him? Those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Then Jesus begins to communicate with this woman. This woman's amazed. He talks about the husbands that she's had and the man that she was now living with and wasn't married to. How did he know that? She didn't offer that information up. She didn't come down there and say, you know, I've been divorced five times and now I'm living with a man that I'm not married to. She didn't offer that information to the Lord Jesus, but Jesus knew it. And when he talked about it, it impressed her so much that when she goes and tells others to come meet the Lord, she says, come see a man that told me all things I ever did. So they, they had some more conversation more than her marital situation. And she says to the Lord, as he's telling her about her past, she says, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. That's interesting to me because a prophet we often think about is somebody who only tells of future events. In this case, Jesus was telling her of past events, and she says, I perceive you're a prophet. You know what a prophet is? Somebody who can speak of the Spirit of God. That's chiefly what the word prophet means. 
And so Jesus speaks to her of her past. She says, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. She goes and tells other men, Come see a man that told me all things I ever did. She was impressed by the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find in the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that he is going uh, to be betrayed, that he's going to be put to death, and after three days he'll rise again. And they began their journey. And when they finished their journey, the Bible lets us know that they had disputed among themselves. You know what they were fighting about? Who would be the greatest? <laughs> now, Jesus, I guess, is walking ahead. Uh, they assume he doesn't hear the conversation. And I don't know if his earthly ears heard the conversation. I don't know if their voices were so low that he could actually hear them in his humanity. I don't know. I do know this. He tries the reins. He knows the hearts. He knows all things. And so when they get to their destination, now remember what has Jesus just told them? He's just told them, I am going to die. <laughs> Now, if Jesus had told you, I'm going to die, would you be talking about who will be the greatest? Probably, that's about what we might have been talking about. That's what these men, who are some of the greatest in history, that's what they want to know. Okay, Jesus is going away. Well, if he's going to be gone, well, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the lead guy here among the apostles if Jesus isn't going to be around? It was clear to them he was the greatest while he was there, but when he was gone, who would be, the, uh, who would be appointed the chief? So Jesus gets to where they were going, and he took a child and set him in their midst. And he says, except you be converted and become as little children, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He lets them know that he that is least in the kingdom of God, in Jesus' view, is actually the greatest. But all that comes through the omniscience of Jesus. He knows about this conversation as they're disputing among themselves who would be the greatest. There are many occasions where Jesus and his omniscience could see and know things that it seemed impossible to know. Luke chapter 7, the Lord Jesus Christ is invited to the home of a man named Simon who's a Pharisee. And Jesus, who ate with publicans and sinners, he ate with Pharisees as well because they were sinners also like the publicans and sinners that he ate with that the Pharisees hated him for. So he goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. But while he's there, there's a woman, the Bible says, which was a sinner. She comes and begins to anoint the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simon begins to say within himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known that this woman, which washes his feet, is a great sinner. Not just a sinner, but a great sinner. Most likely this woman walked the streets at night and seduced men for her living. I don't want to be more plain than that for children's sake. You can explain it at home anyway. One of the worst uh, occupations that we can contrive of in our minds. And that's about what she was, most likely. And Jesus knew that. He was not unaware of what she was. Jesus knew exactly what she was. He knew exactly what she had done. None of this was Jesus ignorant of. But he also was not ignorant of the thoughts going on in the minds of Simon the Pharisee. And so the Lord Jesus begins to speak a parable in the ears of Simon. He, he lays it out just this way. He says, if somebody, let's put it in my word, if somebody owed $500 and somebody owed $5 million and both were forgiven by the same individual, who would be more grateful? Well, Simon says, I suppose he that was forgiven the most. Jesus says, you've answered rightly. He says, this woman which was a great sinner, he says, since I've come in, hasn't ceased to have tears coming down her face, hasn't ceased to wash my feet, to kiss my feet. He says, I came in, you gave me no kiss. 
you didn't wash my feet. In other words, he's letting this woman understands that she was a great sinner. She understood that she was, she understood what Simon didn't. Simon was just as much a sinner as this woman was. Because sin is sin when we boil it all down. I know we categorize it. And there's to a point something right about that. Sin should be categorized to a point. But when it comes to our eternal standing with God, it doesn't matter whether you've eaten a, fruit, a piece of fruit that God said not to eat, whether you've murdered, whether you've committed adultery, whether you've committed sodomy, it's all on the same level at that point. Now again, I understand we categorize it. Just in a court of law, we have to categorize it. Should we put somebody to death who runs a red light? Obviously not. We have to categorize crimes. Should we put somebody to death who takes the life of another? I believe absolutely we should. Uh, the Bible teaches such. Uh, but anyway, here this man tries to paint this woman to be a greater sinner than he. And Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. We see the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew all things. Let's talk for just a moment about the omnipresence of God. I find one of the most fascinating verses in all the Bible is found in John, the third chapter. In John chapter 3, we find this said about the Lord Jesus. Now, it's, I've read this, I believe it, but it has always blown my mind. He's talking to Nicodemus. And he's talking to Nicodemus about the new birth and heavenly things. And Nicodemus just cannot seem to get the message down. And Jesus says in verse 11, We speak of that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. He says, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? How are you going to understand? Obviously, he needed understanding from above. Now, Nicodemus is going to get the lesson. He's just not quite there yet. He's struggling. He's trying. And there's times that I have to put aside natural things to try to understand spiritual things. Why? Because the Bible makes it clear the natural mind cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. And sometimes it's hard for me to shut out the natural mind and then let the spiritual mind try to discern the word and will of God. But anyway, here in John chapter 3, notice what Jesus goes on to say. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Think about that. Read that again. No man hath ascended up to heaven, except or but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. You know what Jesus just said? It's only the Son of Man that's gone up to heaven. It's only the Son of Man that's came down from heaven. And here I am, the Son of Man, right now in heaven. How in the world could the Lord Jesus Christ be there speaking to Nicodemus in the middle of the nighttime and yet also say, I'm also in heaven? Because he's God, he's omnipresent. He can be in all places at one time. The Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity was not so limited that he could not be there on earth speaking uh, with Nicodemus, but also be in heaven at the same moment. Say, how in the world was that so? How could that be? Because he's the son of God. And sometimes when we read about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we fail to recall and keep in memory that not only was he the son of Mary, but even while he was son of Mary and his glory was somewhat veiled, his deity was still altogether intact. He hadn't given up not once ounce, one ounce of his deity to come into this world. And so here he says, no man hath ascended up into heaven, 
But he that came down from heaven, even the Son which is in heaven. And by the way, he's quoting there from the book of Proverbs, a very interesting verse. In Proverbs chapter 30, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is quoting a verse that teaches that he's the eternal Son of God. He says, these are the words of Agur. Verse 4, uh, Proverbs 30. Who hath ascended up into the heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. So here, Agar, this prophet, he begins to speak about one who ascends into heaven and one who descends, one who gathers the winds in his fist, one who binds the waters, as he says here, in a garment, who establish all the ends of the earth. He said, what is his name? And more than that, what is his son's name? Now, there's many that will not deny that God, the Father, is eternal, but who will deny his son is eternal? But here is this man in Proverbs chapter 30 asking the question, what is God's name and what is God's son's name? So obviously, all the way back in Proverbs during the life of Solomon, God had a son at that point. He hadn't come into the world yet, but God already had a son. That son existed before the world even was. Now then, notice what it says, that he, the son, and God, he, he gathers the winds in his fist. He binds the waters in a garment. Let's look for a moment now at the omnipotence of God. Let's use just that example of gathering the winds and the waters. Think of the experience when the disciples were in a ship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And there they are and on a ship on the Sea of Galilee. And what does Jesus do? He's tired, so he goes down to the bottom of the ship, the hinder part of the ship, and he goes to sleep. Now he told them right before they get on the ship and began the journey across the Sea of Galilee, he said, let us pass to the other side. And then he goes and he goes to sleep. Now Jesus knew that there would be a storm. Jesus knew that there would be difficulty. Jesus understood all that. And you can also learn from that about our life, that Jesus has promised us we're going to the other side. There's not one heir of the Lord Jesus Christ that shall ever be lost. I don't care what storm you face between now and heaven, you're going to be in heaven no matter what. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God according to eight, the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. There may be a more... Uh, significant storm in your experience than I may ever face. But don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. It will not divide you from heaven to shore. The Lord Jesus Christ will make sure that you pass safely to the other side. If Jesus could get those disciples from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, he'll get you from earth all the way to heaven. And don't be concerned about it. He's got it all under control. But in the middle of all this, I love Luke's account. Luke gives us the human perspective and a lot of things about Jesus and also his time here on earth. Jesus says they, I mean, Luke says they were in jeopardy. <laughs> so we criticize the disciples sometime, but Luke wasn't on that ship. Luke has heard about this experience and by divine uh, inspiration is writing about it. He says they were in jeopardy. Well, if it's in there by divine inspiration, I'm going to believe they were in jeopardy from one perspective. 
From the human perspective, they were in trouble. From the heavenly perspective, they were never in the first moment of danger. Jesus is in the hinder part of the ship. They come to him. And they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? I despise that question. Of all the things to criticize them for, I, I don't want to criticize them for their alarm. They were in jeopardy. I mean, the ship was full of water. These were experienced men on this particular sea. So when experienced men become afraid, it's, it means there's trouble. There's great trouble. And now I've flown on airplanes and it got bumpy and I'm nervous. But when I look at the flight attendants, they're perfectly calm. Like, okay, this is still normal. They're not upset yet. Now, if I, this hadn't happened yet. If I look up at a flight attendant and all of a sudden I see concern or tears on their face, I'm going to get really upset. But then <laughs> let the pilot come on and get very alarmed. And I'm, I probably say, where is my parachute? I'm ready to get off this thing. So I understand. I mean, the disciples have been here. It's a dangerous situation from their viewpoint. But the question should have never been asked, don't you care? Because that's what, you, don't, you just don't care. They're, they're really not asking. They're really saying you just don't care. And obviously Jesus cared or he wouldn't have been with them to start with. The very fact that he's on earth shows that he cared. So, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Well, Jesus, he gets up, he comes out. I just envision him on the helm of the ship there, and he just speaks to the winds and to the waves. And all he says is, peace, be still. I don't think he shouted. I mean, it was audible enough that men around him heard it. We know they heard it because they were amazed. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They heard Jesus speak. They see an immediate calm. In fact, the Bible says there was a great storm. Then it says there was a great calm. They see all this. And all, how did the calm come about? As it says here in Proverbs 30, there is one who is able to gather the wind in his fist. <laughs> he is able to bound the waters in a garment. <laughs> the same God that can just speak to the winds and gather them up in his grip. And the same God that can take the waters of this earth and just wrap them up in a garment. There that day said to the winds and to the waves, peace be still. And there was a great calm. There we see the omnipotence of God. We see the power and the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another occasion, we'll go forward. Uh, time is uh, quickly going by. We uh, turn to the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, we are at the point of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to leave the garden. And as he's leaving the garden, what happens? Judas brings the soldiers to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus ask? He says, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. What happened? The Bible says they fell backwards. They fell backwards, it says, and they fell to the ground. Now, I would like to think that if I came up to somebody and he says, who are you seeking? And I say the name and I fall backwards and I fall to the ground. When I got up, I think I would have gone the other direction. <laughs> they don't do that, though. See, in John chapter 7, there were some men sent out to arrest Jesus. And they came back. And when the ruler said, where is he? They said, never man spake like this man. 
There was something different about him, so much so they didn't hang around to arrest him. They went home. But on this occasion, it's the appointed hour. God has now turned Jesus into the hands of wicked men. It is the time for the suffering of Christ. And so he asked the second time, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. This time they don't fall back as dead men. And they ultimately arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can speak to my children in such a way that it instills fear. I can look at my children in a way that gets their attention and instills fear. But I've never just with the expression of my voice caused one of my children to fall down. I don't have that ability. Now, for most of you sitting here, I may could say things in such a way or look at you in such a way, and it might bring some fear, or you may just say, who does he think he is? Uh, uh, you know, it just wouldn't uh, have the same uh, 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 power that it does on my three, uh, four children. Uh, but uh, they also know that I have a belt that can come after the voice if the voice isn't enough. And they've experienced that enough to know that the voice should be sufficient enough. But I can't make them fall back as dead men don't want to. But all Jesus had to do was speak. And these men fell backwards to the ground. You know what he was doing there? He was showing his power. See, because later in this same gospel, when Pilate says, Knowest thou not that I have power to release you and I have power to crucify you? You know what Jesus says? Thou couldst have no power except it were given to thee of my Father which is in heaven. He lets Pilate know. The only power you have is the limited power that my father has allowed you to have at this moment over me. He says, no man taketh my life. I lay it down. I take it up again. And so we always need to keep that in mind. The omnipotence of God did not cease in the arrest and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came for that specific hour. But the omnipotence of God was still on display. And he would be reminding men, the ones that would arrest him, and the civil authority that could put him to death, that could give the order for his uh, removal from this world. He made sure that the men who would bind him and the man who sentenced him to death understood that he was still the second in the Godhead. So he shows his omnipotence, and we can find many occasions throughout the life of the Lord Jesus Christ where he clearly shows that he has the power to do great and mighty things, power that you and I have never have had. We can speak to blind men all day long, and they'll never see, to deaf men, and they would never hear, to lame men, and they would never walk, and to dead men, and they would never live. But with Jesus, he just speaks. And in a word, men see, men hear, men walk, and men live. Why? Because he's, a, he's the eternal son of God. So we see his omniscience, his omnipresence. That While he was speaking to Nicodemus, he says, I'm also in heaven right now. And also, and we see, well, think about in John chapter 1, when Nathaniel was over under a fig tree. Jesus was already there. He hadn't come in contact with Nathaniel yet. But uh, there's Nathaniel over there sitting under a fig tree. I don't know what he was thinking about. I don't know what he had in his mind, but Jesus knew. And Nathaniel knew that Jesus knew. <laughs> because he says, when thou was under the fig tree, 
I saw thee. Something significant was going on in the fig tree, under the fig tree, that when Jesus said, when you were under the fig tree, I saw thee. Obviously, Jesus and Nathaniel knew what was going on over there. Jesus determined it was not needful for you and me to know what was going on over there. They knew that's all that mattered. And all of a sudden, you have Nathaniel who tells Philip, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now you've got a man who's ready to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if this is what's convinced you, he said, you're going to see greater things than these. He says, you're going to see the Son of Man ascend, or you're going to see angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man. He said, you're going to see heaven open. You're going to see a ladder extended, that ladder that Jacob saw, but this ladder is going to be the Son of Man. You're going to watch angels go up and down on the Son. In other words, you're going to see heaven and earth bridged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about uh, the great power of the Son of God. He's able to bridge heaven and earth. No one else before could and no one else since. If there's ever to be a bridge between the gap of heaven and earth, it'll be Jesus that will fill it. It'll be Jesus that gets us from this place to that one. Let's look very quickly at one last thing. We looked at God's eternality, the eternality of God. Jesus says in John chapter 10, we quoted this last week. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. He says, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He says, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So notice in that he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give unto them eternal life. Can you give something to somebody that you don't already possess? I can't give you a million dollars because I don't have it. I can give you a hundred dollars right now because I've got that. I couldn't give, I shouldn't have said that. There might be somebody close by listening to the live stream ready to rob me after church. But anyway, uh, I can't give you a million dollars. I don't have it. <clears throat> I can't give you faith. If you have faith, I can tell you things about the word of God that hopefully will strengthen your faith. I can't give you faith. I can't give you eternal life. That's not my job. I don't have it to give. I can tell you about how you got eternal life, but I can't give it to you. So Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life. How does he do that? Because he's already a possessor of it. He is eternal himself. He's the eternal son of God. He gives to us eternal life and we shall never perish. Notice in Romans chapter five, Paul says the same thing in the very closing verses. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. He says that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And just in case we're still not sure exactly where our eternal life comes from, he tells us in the last verse of the next chapter, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through, that means the agency, the means is Jesus. He says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus has eternal life because he himself is eternal and Jesus has given eternal life to you and to me. 
In the very moment that you and I were born of the Spirit of God, eternal life was communicated to us. It was granted to us. It was given to us. It's not something that we've earned. It's not the wage uh, uh, for something that we've done. Again, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Uh, thank God he doesn't talk about eternal life in terms of wages, meaning what we deserve. He speaks always of eternal life to the child of God as the gift of God. It's something that God in his merciful grace extends and grants to us that we could have never uh, conjured up or uh, secured on our own. So again, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let's turn just a moment back to Romans 5. He says the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, the law entered so that the offense might be clear so that men would know what sin is. He says, but where sin abounded, and it has, grace did much more abound. Now there's an obvious question that follows up, and it's asked, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if grace abounds over sin, should we sin more so grace can abound more? He said, God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there and why would we want sin to abound if if we're born of god if we why would we want i mean sin is abounding enough without encouraging it is it not it's abounding in my life more than i want it to it would be a stoic it would be some uh, agnostic some wicked person that would uh, think in such terms in this let's let just sin be unleashed just so that we can watch finally grace abound over it. No, God forbid. Uh, God never intended sin to be in this world. God has suffered sin and God has the remedy for sin. But God is not there in heaven saying, just let sin have its course so that I can show my grace more abundantly. Believe me, there's enough sin uh, so that we'll see enough grace to glorify God. All that God needs. So he says, moreover, law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death. I love this. Even so might grace reign. Grace reigns right now. And he says, it's going to reign through righteousness unto. Grace will have its reign until we experience the fullness of eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus at the last day. Sin reigns. We see it reigning in so many ways. And all of its consequences. But always keep in mind. That as much as sin reigns. Grace reigns more. And it's going to reign longer. Sin will reign till a certain day. And then sin will be put down. And it will be the grace of God. That finally puts down sin. So the Apostle Paul again, he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You and I ought to take on a mind of humility so that we can dwell in unity. And to do that, we need the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus who humbled himself, we need to always remember, never thought it robbery to be equal with God. He understood that he was God's fellow. He was God's equal. That yes, God sent him into this world for a specific purpose, a specific mission, and he completed that. And then when he went back to glory, God gave him a name above every name. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because he had completed that which God had placed in his hand, which is giving us eternal life. 
But in all that time that Jesus was here in this world and faced all the things that he faced, he was still God in every moment. Again, his Godhead may have been shielded in the sense of us seeing it fully. But he never relinquished the power that he had. Now, he did ask his father to give him the glory which he had with him before the world was. He wanted that place back, that exalted place. He had condescended, and it was time for him to ascend into exaltation and glory. And God did that for him. And God did that to him because of what Jesus was willing to do for us. And as much as I love to think about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I like to think about it because I know he understands me, because he's been here, he's lived through it, and I can bring anything of the complaints of my life to him and he will understand it. And as much as I love to think about Jesus in those terms, I never need to do so at the expense of recognizing him as the eternal son of God. And Jesus is not just my buddy. I can't stand terminology like that. I do not like when people bring him down with such crude language as that. He's more than that. He needs to be exalted above that. He needs to be honored and magnified and glorified in the way that we even speak of him. But I am thankful that I have a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And that I have one that understands the issues of my life because he has been here. But had he not also been God at the same time, none of that would have mattered. He could have come here as a good man and gone through a lot of things and understood me. But if he wasn't also God, what would that have brought to my life? Nothing. But because he was man and God at the same time, he could understand me, but also understand God. And now I know that God understands me. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, in some measure, I'm able to understand God. But more than that, because of Jesus Christ, who's the Son of Man and the Son of God, there's coming a day that I will be like Him, and I will be where He is, beholding the face of God in the same holiness that the Lord Jesus Christ has. That's what He's brought to us in His coming as the Son of Man. But let us never bring Him down and fail to remember that he's the eternal son of God. And every attribute that you see in God the Father, you'll also find uh, on display in the life of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you.